From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Israeli forces have expanded their ground operations in Gaza, a major escalation in the war against Hamas. Find out more. And we hear from residents of Lewiston, Maine, after a two-day manhunt for a mass shooter there ended when the suspect was found dead. I think a lot of people are just seeking normal and, uh, and relieved, you know. Plus, Michigan may not be the first place that comes to mind when you think about pizza, but a new podcast takes a look at how the state helped make pizza popular. It's Sunday, October 29th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Gaza, some cellular phone service has been restored after more than 24 hours of a communications blackout. As Palestinians start to recover their ability to reach the outside world, NPR's Liz Baker reports news of deteriorating conditions starting to trickle out. During the communications blackout on Saturday, no aid trucks were able to cross from Egypt with supplies. Since the start of the war, only several dozen trucks have been allowed in, barely a trickle compared to the 500 per day before the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency says several of their distribution centers were raided in Gaza overnight, with thousands of people breaking in and taking basic hygiene supplies and wheat flour. Bread has become increasingly difficult to find in the besieged territory after three weeks of Israeli bombardment. And with limited to no access to water, the threat of disease from sanitation problems grows every day. Liz Baker, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Israeli airstrikes have been pounding Gaza since Hamas's attack on southern Israel. Three weeks ago, Israeli authorities say at least 1,400 people were killed. The latest figures from the health ministry in the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip puts the death toll there at more than 8,000. A Massachusetts family trapped in Gaza was able to send an update on their condition this weekend. From member station WBUR, Deborah Becker reports. Finding that he was able to use his U.S. phone this morning, Abu Dokal sent an audio message saying the airstrikes and missiles over Gaza last night were the worst he's experienced in the three weeks his family's been trapped there. He says he and his wife, Wafa Abu Zaydah, comforted each other and their one-year-old son through the night. We all huddled together so close so that uh, in case something happens unpredicted, we would all at least face the same fate. O'Cal says he's trying to remain hopeful. The U.S. will help negotiate a way for them to return to Massachusetts. For NPR News, I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. In Maine, the focus is shifting towards healing. Following last week's mass shooting, hundreds of people gathered in a town near Lewiston last night for the first of several vigils. Maine Public Radio's Murray Carpenter reports. With a full moon over Lisbon, Maine, people lit candles and came together on the bank of the Androscoggin River to remember the victims of the shootings. Pastor John Jones of Lisbon Falls Baptist Church says the vigil marks the beginning of the healing process for the community. Tonight we want to pray for the victims and their families, for Tricia, for Peyton, for William, for Thomas, Michael. Jones read the names of all 18 people killed on Wednesday. He also encouraged people to pray for the family of the shooter, who was found dead on Friday, and for all those who were injured. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter in Lisbon, Maine. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton is concerned that the escalation in fighting between Israel and Gaza will harm the people being held by Hamas. He told CNN yesterday that a special forces raid is not the way to get the Israeli hostages out of the Gaza Strip. He also warned that a raid could risk triggering a wider regional war. Hezbollah's activity on the northern border of Israel has taken a marked rise. We're not paying much attention to that with everything going on down in Gaza. Moulton says negotiation is a better tactic to get the hostages home. The U.S. has sent troops and ships into the region in an attempt to de-escalate fighting. The Middlesex County DA's office is investigating the death of a 47-year-old man in Melrose yesterday. DA Marion Ryan says police arrived at the Ledge Street home and found James Persent unresponsive and suffering from stab wounds. He was pronounced dead at a local hospital. An initial investigation suggests the stabbing involved a domestic altercation with a woman in the home and a 21-year-old man who also lives there. 78 affordable housing units in Boston's Fenway neighborhood will become a permanent fixture. The city of Boston and two nonprofit housing developers have acquired Our Lady's Guild House. They plan to extensively renovate the property and modernize it for the women who live there. They also aim to protect the tenancies of long-term residents. If you have not yet had the opportunity to see Boston Lights at the Franklin Park Zoo, then today's your last chance. This evening, zoo visitors can meet and take pictures with snow princesses and costumed animal mascots. The Bruins beat the Red Wings 4-1 to last night. Last night in Game 1 of the best-of-three first-round playoff series, the Revs lost to Philadelphia 3-1. to This afternoon, the Patriots face the Dolphins in Miami. It's 52 degrees in Boston with rain today and highs in the mid-50s. Rain likely tonight and tomorrow. Some rain likely highs again in the mid-50s. Looking ahead to Tuesday for Halloween, mostly sunny and temperatures in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us today. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu confirmed Israel's troops are on the ground in Gaza, saying in a televised statement that Israeli forces had begun a, quote, long and difficult war. This comes three weeks after the Hamas attack that Israel says killed 1,400 people. Since then, Gaza health officials say Israeli attacks on Gaza have killed more than 8,000 people. And as Israel's military operation intensifies, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is getting worse. The war is also raising tensions throughout the region. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny is in Naharia in northern Israel and joins us now. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Aisha. What's happening with Israeli troops in Gaza? So Israel is continuing to expand its war against Hamas militants there. On Friday, the military sent a small number of ground forces into Gaza, and Israeli troops remained on the ground there yesterday, making that the first extended presence of Israeli troops in the territory since the war started. Footage released by the Israeli military appeared to show tanks entering along the beach on Gaza's north end. 
The prime minister was also really careful with his wording in his press conference yesterday. He called this the second stage of the campaign. So he avoided calling it this ground invasion. Um, you know, the other thing at play here is the hostage situation. So nearly 230 hostages continue to be held by Hamas. Netanyahu met yesterday with families of the hostages for nearly two hours, saying he's going to bring them back, but it may take some time. And in Gaza, nearly all communication went down Friday evening. Uh, have you been able to reach yeah. people there? Yeah, there was a near total blackout in Gaza for about 24 hours. Palestinians widely suspected Israel intentionally cut the network. Israel has considerable control over Palestinian communication system systems and has refused to comment. Um, you know, there's since been a partial restoration of cell service, but our team, like so many others, have lost connection with a lot of the people that we've been keeping in contact with in Gaza. And Aisha, the, the situation there is extremely dire. I've mm -hmm. been talking with people for the last week about this. I talked with a doctor, you know, his hospital doesn't have water mm -hmm. to wash his hands. It, it doesn't have electricity. He's doing surgery using the light from his cell phone. Uh, people don't have food. They don't have water. They don't have fuel. You can't shower. You can't flush the toilet. Um, but yesterday, after about 24 hours without hearing from him, our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, was able to find a connection, and he sent us a message. We don't know what exactly is happening or where. We are totally cut off from the outside world. Every single person in Gaza, especially the one that you know, relatives, friends, family, are unreachable. You know, Baba took a huge risk just to get cell service to update us, and, and his messages were brief. You know, in his last message, he said there was artillery fire nearby and he had to go. He would try and, and be in touch with us again as soon as he could. Um, this is the story we're hearing from so many people with loved ones inside Gaza. I, I, we went to the West Bank yesterday, to Jericho, to talk to workers who are from Gaza. We met a man named Basil Israin. He told us about the last message he'd gotten from his son. I will be safe. He told me everything is okay until now. But now I don't know what's happening. Just mind what's happening, what's happening, what's happening. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. You said you spoke with workers from Gaza, um, but but in the West Bank, like like what is the situation yeah. there? So Israel gives out a certain number of work permits to people from Gaza, more than eighteen thousand of them. Many of them work here in Israel in retail, restaurants, construction, and after the attacks on October seventh, those permits were revoked. So thousands of workers have since gone missing and are thought to have been arrested by israeli police others made it to the west bank in in jericho where we were yesterday there are about 1500 workers from gaza living in in camps and setups they can't go back uh, the one that we visited yesterday was a military university where about 400 people are staying in dorm style rooms so you know some of the rooms are sleeping more than 30 30 men and you know, they don't have any work. They have nothing to do. They can't go home. And and so they're just scrolling their phones, you know, searching for news from Gaza. And so so when you were in the, the West Bank, what was the, the mood? Well, it was very tense. I mean, Israel has carried out several raids in the West Bank. They've made arrests. People are watching what's happening in Gaza very, very closely. 
We talked with Yusra Swedi. She's the acting governor of Jericho. People in West Bank, they have families in Gaza, cousins, daughters. What happened in Gaza affect us very closely. She and others have said, you know, they're really worried about what's happening in Gaza because they're afraid the same thing could happen in the West Bank. Alyssa, thank you so much for your reporting and, and be safe out there. Thanks, Aisha. And we'll turn now to NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. The war in Israel is intensifying. Hamas is still holding hostages taken during those uh, uh, attacks on October 7th. Civilians in Gaza are suffering and dying. And, and President Biden is, is walking a very tight rope right now. How, how, what is he saying? There, President Biden is definitely walking a tightrope. He has uh, supported Israel in public, but pressured the leaders of Israel in private to show restraint in its offensive. The risks for Biden politically are extreme. Because of his tight embrace of Israel, he could be blamed for Israeli atrocities. Also, if the conflict in Gaza becomes a wider war, a regional war, it would upend Biden's foreign policy, destabilize the world in so many ways, embolden China and Russia. And then there's what happens if Israel succeeds in defeating Hamas, which is certainly not guaranteed. Who governs Gaza after that? What happens next? Can Biden get the Arab world and Israel to agree to a two-state solution? Remember, neither Hamas nor the Netanyahu government was interested in that. So the risks are extreme. Uh, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence spoke in Las Vegas yesterday. The Bible tells us that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And traveling across the country over the past six months, I came here to say it's become clear to me this is not my time. So he says he's suspending his campaign for the Republican nomination. Uh, why now before anyone has voted? And, and, and where does that leave the race? The answer to why now is pretty simple. He's really run out of money. It's just hard to continue if you don't have millions of dollars. And remember, Mike Pence represented the old Republican Party, not the new Trump-centric party. Pence was the guy who wouldn't do what Trump wanted and overturn the election results for Trump in January of 2021. This leaves the Republican primary race pretty much where it was before he dropped out, which is that Trump is ahead by curvature of the earth. He's ahead by, in some polls, 50 points over his next competitors, and everyone else is in single digits or low double digits. And uh, there's really hasn't been anyone who's emerged who could truly challenge Trump for the nomination. But, but Pence was Trump's vice president. <laughs> so even though he's now, I guess, doesn't represent Trump and he's uh, or Trumpism, he's a devout uh, evangelical Christian. Um, and, he, you know, he does have a calm demeanor, but he, he's very similar to the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. And, and the Republican Party is treating Pence and Johnson very differently, though, right? That's true. Uh, the two men are similar in their positions, but with one gigantic difference, which is that Pence was running against Donald Trump and Johnson was running with Donald Trump's endorsement. This is the party of Trump. And that's what's important in the Republican Party today, not ideological or policy positions. 
And what's next for Johnson? Because he's going to try to take control of a Republican conference that's been all over the place in the House. Is the GOP going to try to pivot from the chaos of the last three weeks? They're going to try, but what we don't know is whether Mike Johnson is going to be able to turn the House Republican Party into a governing party. Remember, Democrats used to be the party that was so fractious and diverse. Now it's Republicans that don't seem to be able to get their act together. Remember, Nancy Pelosi had a similar tiny majority, just like Mike Johnson has today, but she managed to keep her Democrats together in a way that John Boehner and Paul Ryan and then Kevin McCarthy couldn't with Republicans. So can Johnson do any better? Can he keep the government open? It's supposed to shut down in just a few weeks. Can he lead the House Republicans to pass support for Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, just because we have a new speaker doesn't mean that the deep divisions in the Republican Party have gone away. In the 30 seconds we have left, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips says he's challenging President Biden for the Democratic nomination. Um, what's the congressman's aim? Well, his aim is to defeat Biden, but his challenge may not go anywhere. It still amplifies Biden's weakness because Phillips' big beef with Biden isn't ideological. It's that Biden can't win because he's too old. That's exactly what Republicans are saying. And even if primary challenges don't defeat incumbents, they really weaken them. Just ask Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush. That's NPR's Mara Liason. Mara, thank you. You're welcome. news. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about half an hour here on 90.9 WBUR, the origins and legacy of Watership Down, the beloved 51-year-old work of fiction about rabbits on an epic journey is now getting a new life as a graphic novel. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting The Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. There is nothing like live radio. And with the WBUR app, you can listen live wherever you are. Get the free WBUR app today. It's 53 degrees in Boston, rain today, and temperatures in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel's ground operation in Gaza marks the second stage in Israel's war against Hamas militants. Israeli tanks and infantry pushed into Gaza this weekend amid an intense Israeli bombardment. Mike Pence has withdrawn from the race for the Republican presidential nomination. He delivered his last speech as a candidate in Las Vegas this weekend at the annual meeting of the Republican Jewish Coalition. And tributes are being paid to actor Matthew Perry, who played Chandler Bing on the sitcom Friends. Los Angeles Times and other media reports say he was found dead yesterday at his L.A. home. He was 54. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Lewiston, Maine is in mourning after the mass shooting there Wednesday night. 18 people are dead and another 13 are injured. Several remain in critical condition. NPR's Joe Hernandez has our update. It's Saturday afternoon, about three days after the shooting, and Lewiston resident Terry Stibbards says things are finally starting to calm down. Today we just don't, we don't hear as many sirens uh, by any means, but a lot more street traffic and stuff. So it's, uh, it's, it's good to hear the normal city noises. I met him just hours after the shelter-in-place orders were lifted by Maine officials and after investigators announced they'd found the body of the suspected shooter. Stibbard says the streets are a bit busier than they have been this week. Businesses are open, kids are playing in the park across from Lewiston City Hall, people are walking their dogs and drinking coffee. I think a lot of people are just seeking normal and, uh, and relieved, you know. This week has been far from normal for Lewiston and the surrounding area. The deadly massacre in Maine's second largest city shattered the close-knit community that almost everybody here says feels like a small town. Maine Governor Janet Mills said as much during a press conference late Friday night. This isn't us. Lewiston is a great place. It's a close-knit community of fine people. That sense of community was on full view Saturday afternoon on Lisbon Street. I stopped to talk to 21-year-old Gabe Hurst of Westbrook, Maine, who's handing out flowers to strangers. Yeah, I feel like flowers are pretty. Would you like a flower, sir? Hurst says even though he and his family aren't from Lewiston, as a Maine resident, he felt compelled to do something. I personally didn't know any of the victims, but it's a very small state. You know a guy who knows a guy. I know people that know them. Sherry Withers decided to open her Lewiston gallery and market on Saturday to give community members a safe place to go. She says she's felt an outpouring of support in the days since the shooting. You know, my children's teachers were texting to make sure we were okay. Um, the different businesses, um, co-workers, and so it just showed a lot of love. Withers had two friends in the shootings, one at the bowling alley and one at the bar. Both escaped with their lives. But an acquaintance of hers, Tom Conrad, was killed. She says Conrad was part of the craft brewing community in Lewiston and had worked with her and her husband. So he was, you know, he was very, very good with children at the, the bowling alley. And, you know, he was always a very chat, chatty, talkative guy. So most people, you know, he had no problem just going up and, you know, striking a conversation with people. The victims ranged in age from 14 to 76. Among them were a husband and wife and a father and son. Lewiston will continue to try to recover from this mass shooting in the days to come. And Withers says that persistent, caring, and hardworking spirit Lewiston is known for might be what helps locals get through the crisis. 
You know, it's been, it's always been a little, little rough here, but you know, I love this community so much. And I think that's kind of what has brought us all together um, before all this. And I think it's what's gonna keep us, you know, together going forward. Joe Hernandez, NPR News, Lewiston. Israel is intensifying its assault on Gaza after the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israeli civilians. We're following developments on the fighting and on the humanitarian situation in Gaza where necessities are in short supply and people are dying as a result. You can find updates throughout this program and at npr.org slash updates. The war has implications far beyond Gaza, the West Bank, and the shifting lines of demarcation in and around Israel. Karen Young is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and she tells us that if the conflict widens, there's risk of a global energy shock. It's absolutely Iran as the wild card. And so Iran has already suggested to OPEC to embargo Israel the way that happened in 1973. OPEC and OPEC Plus, including Russia, have not been in favor of that idea. Saudi Arabia is not in favor of that idea. But Iran can do a lot of things directly or indirectly, particularly through its proxies, including Hezbollah in Lebanon, including Shia militias inside of Iraq, including uh, militia groups and terrorist groups inside of northern Syria, and the potential activation of the Houthis, which have been fighting a war against Saudi Arabia and have a history of lobbing missiles and drones into Saudi territory and even into the territory of the United Arab Emirates. And that will be a real risk and uh, an elevation to potential oil prices. So, of course, any direct Iran engagement changes the outlook considerably. But even the use of Iranian proxies, if they target oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia or in the Emirates or perhaps even in Kuwait, would be extremely risky and and escalate prices. Do you see any um, parallels between the situation now and, say, you know, the the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of of 9-11 and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan? The risk to high gasoline prices in the United States, it's a bit complicated. But what we're essentially worried about, if oil prices were to spike to $120 a barrel, up from where they are about 90 right now, that would require some sort of block in the transit of oil through the Strait of Hormuz, around the Arabian Peninsula, up the Red Sea Corridor, into the Suez. So that means it has to be a widening conflict in which Iran or Iranian proxies engage directly. We're not to that point. But if things do escalate, that would be the risk to oil prices. And then that would translate to a higher price for American consumers for refined product for gasoline. And at this point, does the market, does the oil market in particular, like is there slack there or are we in a very tight market? We're not really in a tight market, we're in a politicized market. And so that's a result of sanctions. And one lever that the United States is already preparing to use is to loosen sanctions on Venezuela and Venezuelan production. So that's why that's happening. It's a bit of a kind of safety valve to understand that there may be more supply available. We're also not really standing in the way of Iranian production and export. And so Iran is currently producing quite a bit of oil and exporting quite a bit to China. In fact, Iran has surpassed Saudi Arabia 
in its exports to China currently. And Russian oil is still getting to market, including, you know, even though we have a price cap on, on Russian oil, it's still getting to buyers, including in China and in India. So the market is not in a, an exceptionally tight position. And of course, we have spare capacity also um, in that Saudi Arabia could produce much more than it is currently. Mm-hmm. And, and what about the other major players? Um, you know, the U.S. is is the world's number one oil producer at this point. Um, you know, Russia's number three, China's number six. So the U.S. is a major producer, but we're not so much of an exporter in the way that Saudi Arabia can really kind of calibrate its exports and its ability to increase supply in the market. We we don't really have that capacity. But we we do have the capacity to use our strategic petroleum reserve. Unfortunately, we have used a lot of it in the last couple of years, but there is still quite a bit there. And so in terms of our own domestic supply and security, that is also an option for us. That's Karen Young of Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. There are an estimated 55,000 vacant teaching positions in schools across the country. And one possible solution has gone viral, programs called Grow Your Own. They aim to recruit teachers from the local community, and there are more and more public funds available to support them. But as Kavitha Cardoza reports, we don't yet know if they're effective. What would this decimal be for four over a hundred? Four hundred. And what about six? Jenna Grow is a custodian at Wyandotte Elementary School in St. Mary's Parish in southern Louisiana. She's also a teacher in training through a Grow Your Own program, an alternative pathway to becoming an educator. Point zero six, maybe? Right. Grow school principal Celeste Pipes is eager for Grow to complete her training. Pipes has been struggling to fill teacher positions. I remember when I started teaching 20 years ago, I didn't know if I was guaranteed a job. And in just that short amount of time, we're pulling people literally off the streets to fill spots in a classroom. Pipes isn't alone. Many principals across the country face a similar challenge. And recently, researchers found an estimated 900 districts were trying to ease their shortages through Grow Your Own training programs. Some of these programs help people earn bachelor's degrees or complete their teacher certification, while others simply aim to increase interest in the teaching profession. Here's U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona speaking earlier this year. For the first time, we're putting millions into ensuring grow your own programs, that they're developed to bring the talent into the profession. State governments have also made hundreds of millions of dollars available to pay for them. But do they work? There's very, very little empirical evidence about the effectiveness of these pathways. That's Roddy Theobald, who studies education at the American Institutes for Research. He says Grow Your Own programs have been celebrated as a way to ease teacher shortages, increase retention, make degrees more accessible, and diversify an overwhelmingly white workforce. He isn't the only researcher raising questions. We're seeing it as a silver bullet, but we just don't know if the programs themselves induced people to become teachers. Daniel Edwards is an assistant professor of education at Old Dominion University. She says it isn't clear whether graduates from these programs go on to become certified teachers and whether they are as or more effective than teachers who go through more traditional routes. 
we want to know whether teachers who participate in grow your own programs have higher contributions to student test scores whether they have higher contributions to the likelihood kids graduate high school whether they graduate college and their contribution to students income when they become adults one of the challenges is that grow your own programs rarely target the specific needs of schools theobald says some states, for example, only have staffing shortages in, say, special education or science, and these programs may not be graduating teachers in those areas. Sometimes they result in even more teachers to teach courses that the state doesn't actually need. Researchers say another unknown is whether Grow Your Own programs actually translate into more teacher diversity. David Donaldson believes they do. He heads the National Center for Grow Your Own Nonprofit. We don't believe in putting an age on here. We don't believe in putting a educational background on here. We think the only thing that should matter is do you have a heart for kids? He thinks a lot about the fact that public school students are mostly children of color, while teachers are mostly white. Donaldson believes these programs can do a lot to increase teacher diversity, in part by removing financial barriers and expanding the pool of potential educators. It allows us to have a different conversation about who gets to become a teacher and how they are prepared. That is the very first reason I joined. Absolutely. Affordable. Tawana Edwards has been trying for years to become a teacher, but she never managed to finish her training because life got in the way. I'm a single mother with three children, two grandchildren, and I have two jobs as well. Edwards lives in rural eastern Arkansas. She works as a secretary for a nonprofit and also at an after-school program. She recently found a Grow Your Own program that was low-cost and offered online classes. So getting off my second job, I'm able to attend class, and so it worked well with my schedule. That's the power of Grow Your Own, Donaldson says. And if there isn't research to prove it, that's because for most programs, he says, it's too soon to tell. We'll let others do the research. We'll let others do the program evaluation. We are solely focused on helping more and more programs get launched. There are efforts underway to start gathering data that might answer these questions. But in the meanwhile, schools have immediate needs. We try to do different things. And I made it interactive where I put the little uh, bus with Rosa Parks. At Wyandotte Elementary, custodian Jenna Groh is eager to help. She currently makes $22,000. When she graduates with a degree in teaching next year, it will be without any debt and her salary will double. She loves how a teacher can shape a child's future for the better. That is what a teacher is, a nurturer, trying to provide them with the resources that they are going to need for later on in life. I think I can be that person. I know I can. Best of all, she expects to stay in this same elementary school. For NPR News, I'm Kavita Cardosa. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Have you heard? America now has hydrogen hubs. These are regions identified by the Biden administration as places where the U.S. can accelerate the use of hydrogen as a clean energy source. There are seven hubs in all, spanning 16 states. And as the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports, Pennsylvania straddles two of the new regions. President Biden made the big announcement earlier this month in Philadelphia. It's one of the cities awarded a hydrogen hub with money from the bipartisan infrastructure law he signed in 2021. $7 billion in federal investments is going to attract 
$40 billion on private investment in clean hydrogen and power economy. The hubs are part of Biden's push to get the U.S. economy to emit no planet-warming carbon pollution by 2050. Scientists say it's a necessity to stave off human-driven climate change. Hydrogen is an abundant element. It gives off zero carbon when used to create energy, either through combustion or a fuel cell. Adam Walters is with the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development. He recently spoke at a conference about hydrogen's role in the D word, decarbonization. You can use it to decarbonize a whole range of potential industries, particularly ones that are difficult uh, to decarbonize otherwise, like cement and steel and plastics manufacturing. But to do any of this, you have to harvest hydrogen from one of two sources, water or natural gas. Hydrogen is energy intensive. You need energy to make it. Bridget Van Dorsten is an analyst with the consulting firm Wood McKenzie. So there's always going to be some kind of trade-off, no matter what process we're talking about. You can use renewables to pry hydrogen off of water molecules. That's called green hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is when you pull hydrogen out of natural gas, then bury any carbon dioxide created underground. The funding from the infrastructure law dictated two of the hubs be in natural gas-producing regions. It just so happens Pennsylvania can do both green and blue hydrogen. It has offshore wind planned in the Atlantic Ocean to the east and fracked natural gas to the west. This is all good news to Rich Negrin. He leads Pennsylvania's Department of Environmental Protection. I'm not kidding. I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I think it's, I think it's the dawn of a, of a clean energy economy that we've been talking about for years. The hubs will take a decade or longer to build and are eligible for hundreds of millions in federal funding each. The Philadelphia-based hub will use nuclear, solar, and offshore wind energy for hydrogen. Western Pennsylvania will be part of a West Virginia-based hub that uses blue hydrogen from natural gas. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin championed the project in a video. America is finally recognizing West Virginia's strength as America's energy powerhouse. Now as our nation strives for energy security, West Virginia will once again answer the call. Environmental groups are skeptical how climate-friendly blue hydrogen will actually be if greenhouse gases escape during the process. Jim Coatson is with the West Virginia chapter of the Sierra Club. He says he's also worried the natural gas-based hub in his state will lead to more fracking, which carries its own environmental and public health risks. It would perpetuate the fossil fuel industry rather than help us wean from fossil fuels. So we have real concerns about this proposal. The Treasury Department is writing rules that will detail how clean these projects need to be to qualify for billions in clean hydrogen tax credits. That money comes through Biden's major climate policy, the Inflation Reduction Act. Many worry the money will go to projects that don't actually cut pollution if the rules aren't strict enough. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Hundreds of people gathered in a park in Lisbon, Maine last night in a vigil after last week's mass shooting in Lewiston. This was the first of several planned vigils to mourn the victims of the tragedy. The shooter killed 18 people and injured 13. Union janitors have authorized a strike for nearly 12,000 of their counterparts in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. That vote came in a meeting in Boston yesterday. The janitors are currently stuck in negotiations for a new contract. 
The group set a deadline for a tentative agreement of November 15th. The janitors clean more than 90% of commercial buildings in the Boston area, the Merrimack Valley, Worcester, and Providence. A ceremony at the Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston tonight pays tributes to the recipients of the 2023 John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Awards. The honor goes to five women serving as state senators in South Carolina who formed a bipartisan coalition to filibuster a near-total abortion ban there. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com and the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting the enigmatic, improvisatory White Rabbit, Red Rabbit with different actors every performance. Through November 12th, theumbrellaarts.org. I'm Scott Tong, pummeling you with pumpkin recipes. Our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, is carving and cooking up her favorites, including mac and cheese and roasted pumpkin. It is ooey, gooey, sweet, savory, so delicious, and also just a beautiful meal to have this time of year. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Mark Ocean of Portland, Oregon. I said, name a country, the first syllable spells something that people do, and the rest of the name is an anagram of where some people do that. What country is it? And the country is Singapore, people sing, and some people do that at the opera. There were more than 1,700 correct entries, and Michael Laborde of Oro Valley, Arizona, is our puzzle winner. He beat everybody out. Congratulations, Michael. Thank you. And so how long have you been playing the puzzle? Just a couple of years. Just a couple of years. And have you been listening longer? Only maybe another couple of years. I used to always be busy doing something else on Sunday mornings, and I think I just got interested in hearing the news on Sundays just a few years ago. Oh, wow. What do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I do a lot of different things. I'm I'm a big movie buff and a music buff, particularly for jazz and um I also have a group of friends that we get together once every week, and we play uh, word and trivia games. Oh, okay. So then you're really ready for this. I don't even have to ask, but I will ask. Are you ready, Michael? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, take it away, Will. All right, Michael and Aisha, every answer today is a word or phrase in which the only consonants are P and S, repeated as often as necessary. All the other letters are vowels. And, for example, if I said spots on a playing card, you would say pips. 
Okay. So here we go. Number one is Rival of Coke. Pepsi. Pepsi is it. Number two is Mexican Coins. Uh, peso. That's it. Wife or husband? Uh, spouse. That's it. To go against. Oppose. Excellent. To assume without proof. Ooh. Assume. No, no, that doesn't a, work. Yeah, it's a P and a S. Can uh, I get a hint? Uh, yeah, it starts with S. To assume without proof, and you might say, I... Oh. Suppose. Suppose. You got it. Flowers that produce opium. Poppies. That's it. Young dogs. Puppies. That's it. A group that accompanies a sheriff in a Western. Posse. Uh-huh. To have. Possess. Uh-huh. To placate by acceding to someone's demands. Mm. Yeah. Uh, starts with A. And uh, Still drawing a blank on this one. Uh-huh. And uh, let's say someone in authority, say, is making you unhappy and you want to make them happy. And... Appease? Appease. Good job, Aisha. Thank you. Small bouquets. Uh, posies. That's it. To forego as an opportunity. It's a two-word phrase. Pass up. Pass up, is it? The next one's also a two-word phrase. Appears suddenly. Pops up. Uh-huh. And here's your last one, also a two-word phrase. Thick fog is said to resemble it. Pea soup. Pea soup. Nice job. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Okay, look, Michael, you killed that one because I'm glad you got it because I would have still been sitting here on the first or third one. Pepsi, I knew. Pepsi, <laughs> I knew that right off because I drink a lot of soda. But, yeah, no, you did a great job. Aisha, thank you on the for the help on the one I couldn't think of. Oh, oh no, no problem at all. That's what I'm here for. So, so how do you feel? I feel relieved and happy. <laughs> for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And, Michael, what member station do you listen to? I listen to... K-U-A-Z-F-M. I'm a sustaining member. Oh, that's what we love to hear. That's Michael Laborde of Oro Valley, Arizona. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, Will, so what is next week's challenge? Yes, this week's challenge comes from listener Jim Bricker of Wayland, Massachusetts, and it's a little different from the usual. The time 629 on a digital clock, ignoring the colon, also reads 629 upside down. How many times in a day can a digital clock, ignoring the colon, read the same right side up as upside down? And we're not going with military time, we're going with regular time. So again, how many times in a day can a digital clock, ignoring the colon, read the same right side up as upside down? Okay, that's a lot of numbers to go through, but I, I, I believe our audience will do it. <laughs> when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, November 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thanks a lot, Aisha.
when I say the word pizza, your mind might wander to Italy or New York or even Chicago for deep dish. You probably do not think of Michigan, but some of the most profitable pizza chains like Domino's and Little Caesars call the state home, and they've helped shape the pizza industry into what it is today. The history and influence of these chains are the subject of a new podcast from Michigan Radio called Doe Dynasty. April Bear is one of the podcast's co-hosts and joins me now. Welcome to the program. Aisha, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what was it about Michigan, say for Domino's, that made it an attractive place to kind of lay down roots? Right. Okay. So once you get any kind of company town, you know, there's a certain critical mass. It's like in Detroit, you've got Ford and General Motors and Stellantis, right? There's just going to be a lot of engineers and people in the industry and people who worked on lines for the different companies. To some extent, that's the story of Michigan pizzas. A lot of it we found had to do with technological innovations that Domino's and Little Caesars came up with. Fun fact, Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's, is the originator of the corrugated cardboard pizza box. Oh, okay, I think I heard this. I think I heard about this. So the, the, the box that we know of for the pizza. I know, I know I've just blown okay. your mind. I mean, there's people probably <laughs> think like, okay, so? But if you think about it, prior to that, pizzas were delivered in these paper boxes, like kind of like what you get at the bakery. And mm -hmm. like, that pizza is not going to stay fresh during mm -hmm. the delivery trip. But the corrugated pizza box was a big deal. The other thing is uh, issues of the technology of supply chains. Domino's was a big innovator in that field. Little Caesars also had control of its ingredients kind of like up the stream from a very early point in the business history. I was talking to Denise Illich, who is the daughter of Mike and Marion Illich, the founders of Little Caesars. And she was telling me like her dad was like many other industry people was very obsessed with quality of ingredients and consistency. It all began with this preoccupation he had with mushrooms and how they were gonna get good fresh mushrooms for all of their different shops. And so what he decided to do as a young entrepreneur is start a mushroom farm. And it was on Telegraph Road in Southfield, but it was like an office building, but they started growing mushrooms. And so Little Caesars and Domino's, I mean, they are obviously no longer local restaurants. They are all over the place. What kind of economic impact did they have in the state? Oh man, Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's, really had a major impact in American politics and legal culture in terms of his investments in conservative law. I mean, he, he founded a whole law school that is currently based in Florida, Ave Maria, the Thomas More Legal Society. Some would say that you can't look at the composition of today's Supreme Court or the conservative legal movement in this country without talking about Tom Monahan. For those, you know, listeners out there who are not as worldly and have, haven't been around as much and may not know about the glory of Detroit-style pizza, tell us about what that is. <laughs> I would just like to take this moment to say to my friends in New York, New Jersey, and Chicago, just, just open your ears, open your mind, <laughs> open your heart. It has a light, airy crust, kind of like a focaccia bread. It's got air bubbles, and it, it's, it's like crisp on the outside and chewy on the inside. It makes for a very different bake. And I have to say, Aisha, in the course of this project, there was one weekend where I tried six different kinds of Detroit-style pizza from chefs around downtown, and I don't think I've ever been happier. 
April Bear, co-host the Doe Dynasty podcast from Michigan Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure, Aisha. Save a slice for me. The children's classic, Watership Down, has been turned into a movie, a play, a TV series, a radio special, and five years ago, a Netflix show. Now the story about a group of rabbits trying to find a safe place to live is coming out as a graphic novel. NPR's Matthew Sherman revisits the story in all its versions. From the beginning, Watership Down has teetered on the cusp between children's fantasy and adult literature. It was born in the mid-1960s when a British civil servant, Richard Adams, was trying to entertain his daughters on a long car ride. Rosamund Mahoney was about six at the time. He started off a story, once upon a time there were two rabbits called uh, Hazel and Fiverr. Fiverr has a premonition that their warren is doomed. His brother Hazel plans the escape. Adams drew on elements from Greek literature and his childhood in the countryside. He made it up as he went along. But when we got there, the story was so long that he hadn't actually finished it. So it had to be finished on the way to school on subsequent mornings. Mahoney says her father had a huge imagination that went, well, underutilized as a member of the country's vast bureaucracy. He regularly introduced his daughters to sophisticated material, reading them Shakespeare and taking them to operas. Her older sister, Juliette Johnson, says sometimes he could be exhausting. There was always noise and shouting and, and, you know, he could talk about things till the cows came home. The girls encouraged their dad to write down the story, which he later did, elaborating as he went. By that point, Johnson was away at boarding school. Somewhere in a tin around here, I've got a box of letters where he'd get stuck on things. So he'll sort of say, I haven't decided, you know, whether to let Bigwig die in the snare or not yet. You know, I've got to think of some more jokes for Bluebell. The manuscript turned out to be about 500 pages and was rejected many times. Publishers said it was too long for children and adults would not want to read a story about rabbits. Mahoney says her father disagreed. He just said it was a book that was written for anybody who wanted to read it. And that was anybody from those who were so small they could hardly hold the book to those who were so old that they could hardly see the print. When Watership Down was finally published in 1972, Adams was proven right. People still couldn't decide if it was a kid's book or not, but it was read by all ages. One of those readers was S.F. Saeed. He encountered the book when he was eight, after his mother had read it. It turned out the lives of those rabbits were so much more interesting than I could have imagined. They were living in a very dark and dangerous world, and everything out there seemed to be bigger than them, stronger than them. I could not stop turning the pages. I had to know, how are they going to do it? How are they going to live? The book inspired Saeed to become a children's book writer. He says he uncovers another layer every time he reads the book. It's about nature, pathology, political philosophy, and overcoming prejudice. There's this huge, ferocious seabird um, called Kiha, who uh, the rabbits are terrified of, but Hazel, the leader, befriends Kiha because he sees, first of all, this bird is in trouble and needs help. Secondly, this bird could be a phenomenal ally if they could only befriend him. Even though the book has sold more than 50 million copies worldwide, many people got to know the story from an animated film that came out in 1978. 
It was rated G, but ended up scary, even traumatizing a lot of the kids who saw it. I told you that I would kill you myself. There's no white bird here, big week. In 2022, its rating was changed to PG. The film's director, Martin Rosen, says he wasn't trying to make a scary movie. I felt it would be dishonest not to make the picture as I perceived it when I read it. That's what he wrote, that it was bloody. And I felt honor-bound to represent it as such. And he's got a point. Richard Adams fought in World War II. Glimpses of his wartime experiences emerged throughout the book. The Rabbit Hazel was based on the author's commanding officer. And there's a lot of fighting and blood. Adams died in 2016. A few years later, the daughters decided a graphic novel version would reach a new audience. They looked for a team that would stay close to the text and chose storyboard artist James Sturm and illustrator Joe Sutphin. The two Americans flew to England and visited the real Watership Down. Yes, there is such a place, and it has low rolling hills and plenty of rabbits. Sutphin's own rabbits are more realistic than the ones in the screen versions. The eyes narrower, the body's leaner. I was trying not to be too exaggerated or uh, fantastical. So um, I knew that, that Roz and Juliet didn't want like a Bugs Bunny kind of thing happening. But most important, Sutphin wanted readers to have a different feeling than they did after seeing the film. I also hope that this book will help people correct their memory of Watership Down, the animated film focused heavily on the peril and less on the beauty. And that means letting the reader see that, as he puts it, shadows only prove that the sun is still shining. The way that we tell it, the darkness is real, but it's all with that sense that you're holding on to faith, you're building character, you're finding hope. Matthew Sherman, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. And from Melville Charitable Trust committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Calling all crafters. Join us at City Space next month for an evening dedicated to homemade creations. That's Monday, November 13th. For free tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 53 degrees in Boston. Rain today. Temperatures in the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sony Pictures Classics, The Persian Version, a new comedy that celebrates cultural differences as a young woman's secret is revealed to her eccentric family in theaters now. I'm Peter Gross, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we talked about how a live baby animal cam is getting us through the actor strike. This is where we're at now. A baby otter is the closest we can get to Timothy Chalamet. 
<laughs> On the radio, you can imagine we're all baby otters. So join us and special guest legendary lyricist Bernie Taupin on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The United Auto Workers have reached a tentative deal with Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis. We have the latest. And changes are coming to the federal financial aid application for college students. Find out more. Plus, author Jeanette Winterson talks about why we can't get enough of ghost stories just in time for Halloween. Death is the hard boundary. It's the barrier that everybody on this planet will meet at some point in their life, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter who they are, no matter what their achievements. It's Sunday, October 29th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The U.N. aid agency in the Gaza Strip says it's seeing signs that civil order is beginning to break down amid the Israeli bombardment that has choked aid supplies. Thousands have broken into warehouses, taking basic survival items such as flour. Juliette Tuma is a spokesperson for the agency. Very sadly, it has to do with uh, high levels of uh, frustration and despair and actually hunger among the communities in, in Gaza. The tight siege of the three weeks, the, the, the war, the bombardments, the airstrikes, people feel very, very frustrated. Supplies are running low as Israel widened its ground offensive this weekend. However, Palestinians are starting to recover their ability to reach the outside world. After a 24-hour blackout, communications are coming back online. And an Israeli official said today that Israel will allow a significant increase in aid to Gaza in the coming days. General Motors is now the only one of Detroit's big three that does not have a tentative contract agreement with the United Auto Workers Union. The UAW and still Stellantis reached a tentative deal last night. Brett Dahlberg is with Michigan Radio. Stellantis is the parent company of brands like Jeep, Chrysler, and Ram. The deal the company reached with the UAW shares some overlap with the one the union made with Ford last week. UAW President Sean Fain says the union strike has reversed years of stagnating wages and benefits. With this agreement, we're going from defense to offense. We're going from the managed decline of the American working class to a new era of auto manufacturing. Both the Stellantis and Ford deals include 25% general wage increases and cost of living adjustments that the union hasn't had since 2009. Union leaders and the rank and file still need to approve the contracts. For NPR News, I'm Brett Dahlberg in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Overseas, Beijing is hosting an international defense forum today, even though China currently does not have a defense minister. NPR's Emily Fang reports he was dismissed from the post last week with no explanation after disappearing from the public eye in August. The U.S. is sending a delegation to Beijing to attend China's Xiangshan Forum. It's an annual gathering of defense officials from all over the world. 
but there will be no Chinese defense minister to host them. Li Shangfu was suddenly stripped from his titles this week. He'd last been seen in August, and now he's the second minister this year to lose his job after less than a year in, because in July, China's foreign minister was also suddenly stripped of his position. Li Shangfu, the defense minister, was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2018, making it difficult for the U.S. defense chief to meet with him. But now that Li has lost his job, however, whoever replaces him may be able to finally reestablish a direct line of communication with the U.S. Emily Fang, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. As the focus of Maine's deadliest mass shooting shifts towards healing, Hundreds of people gathered in the town of Lisbon yesterday evening for the first of several planned vigils for the 18 people killed and the 13 people injured in the Lewiston tragedy. Murray Carpenter reports. A full moon rose over Lisbon as people lit candles and came together on the bank of the Androscoggin River to remember the victims of the shootings. Pastor John Jones of Lisbon Falls Baptist Church said this is the beginning of the healing process. He read the names of those killed by the gunmen. Tonight we want to pray for the victims and their families, for Tricia, for Peyton, for William. Jones also encouraged people to pray for the family of the shooter who was found dead in Lisbon on Friday. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Murray Carpenter. A group of South Boston neighbors is rallying to save a local park. The Boston Herald reports dozens of people showed up at Sister Mary Veronica Park yesterday to call on the archdiocese to stop the planned sale of the land. An archdiocese spokesperson told the Herald that the archdiocese purchased the lot from the city in 1955 and now welcomes purchase proposals from interested parties, including the city of Boston. The iconic John Hancock sign that lived in Fenway Park for 20 years now has a new home. The Boston Business Journal reports the 60-foot-long sign should be fully installed at the company's Back Bay headquarters by this afternoon. It'll take a few more days of testing before the company illuminates the sign. John Hancock ended its longtime partnership with the Red Sox last year. This afternoon, the Patriots take on the Dolphins in Miami. It is 53 degrees in Boston, rainy today with temperatures in the mid-50s. Some rain likely tonight, lows dropping to the upper 40s. Rain likely tomorrow and highs again in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for being with us. We begin this hour with an update on the auto union strikes. The United Auto Workers and Chrysler's parent company say they have reached a tentative deal. Here's UAW President Sean Fain. On day 44 of our stand-up strike, I'm honored to announce that our union is again victorious. But at General Motors... The strike actually expanded. 1853, stand 1853, up. stand up. It's our time. Uh, we're clearing out power train. We're walking out now. 
That's a union representative walking out of GM's plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. NPR's Camila Dominoski is here with us with the latest. Good morning, Camila. Good morning, Aisha. So let's start with this latest deal. Uh, Did the union get what they want? They got a lot. This deal with Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis, it's very similar to a deal the union just struck with Ford this week, which was widely regarded as a win for the union. So it includes a 25% raise over the four and a half year contract, plus on top of that cost of living increases that are tied to inflation, an even bigger pay boost for newer employees and temps, the right to strike plant closures. And then at Stellantis specifically, they'll be reopening this closed plant in Belvedere, Illinois. It'll be making a mid-sized truck. It'll also get a battery plant. And bringing this idled plant back was a really big deal to the union and to a lot of workers. It means thousands of jobs, right? Now, of course, the union didn't get everything. And on the list of what they didn't get, for instance, they wanted pensions back for all employees, which was a really big ask and didn't happen. We don't know the full details of these contracts yet, so it's not clear what else they might have yielded on to. Does this mean the strike is over at those companies? Workers are going back to production lines at Ford and Stellantis while they vote on these deals. That's actually unusual to go back to work while it's still tentative. And important to emphasize, this is not a done deal, right? The union needs to send it out to the membership for a vote. The members get to decide if it's good enough or not. And this is not like a rubber stamp formality situation. This past, Earlier this month, uh, Mack Trucks, separately organized by the UAW under a different contract, had a tentative deal and members rejected it. So they're back at the table. Uh, Let's turn to GM, where it's a very different story. What's happening there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, GM does not have a deal with the UAW right now, and they're under a lot of pressure to reach one, clearly. I mean, you've got more GM workers going out on strike right as these Ford and Stellantis workers are going back to work. This surprise expansion hit GM's Spring Hill plant in Tennessee, which is a big blow for for a couple of reasons. One, it is a really big plant. It's the largest in North America for GM. It makes Cadillacs and the GMC Acadia, high margin vehicles. It also builds engines that go to other plants. So big ripple effects here. Uh, GM said they are disappointed by the move, a word the union also used to describe GM's talks with the union. Uh, GM says their goal is to reach an agreement as quickly as possible. Uh, The strike started more than six weeks ago. How damaging has it been? Yeah, it depends who you're talking about. You know, workers getting $500 weekly strike pay instead of pay, that's hard, but obviously it's short-term pain for hopefully this longer-term gain, right? If you're talking about car shoppers, not that affected, really. There were a lot of cars on lots heading into the strike, a lot of non-unionized car companies selling plenty of cars. But for these three companies in particular, big cost. GM tallied it at $800 million. Ford added it up to $1.3 billion lost to the strikes. So obviously a big incentive to strike these deals here. That's NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. 22 days. That's how long it took the House GOP to settle the battle for the gavel. And if the chaos surrounding the process made anything clear, it's the influence of a certain former president. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus came down and said, I want to be Speaker, he would do it. Other than that, I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody that can guarantee it. But at some point, I think we're going to uh, 
going to have somebody pretty soon. That somebody, of course, turned out to be Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, a big Trump supporter. We wanted to check back in with two journalists who have reported extensively on Trump and his influence, Peter Baker of The New York Times and Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. Their book about him is called The Divider. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. As you watch this House GOP battle play out these last few weeks, what struck you about Trump's role in this? Uh, Susan, let's start with you. Well, I do think in the end the Trump factor was really the reason that that Johnson is the speaker right now. He was, according to a piece in the Times after the fact, he was one of the most important architects of the legal fight to block Joe Biden's certification in Congress. In other words, he was a key participant in Trump's lies about the 2020 election. And that's the reason that Trump and others are now calling him MAGA Mike Johnson. Mm. And Peter, what do you think about that? Because it does seem like Trump absolutely played a role, but he wasn't able to just say this is the person because, of course, he endorsed Congressman Jim Jordan, but Jordan didn't make it. Well, that's exactly right. And that's important to remember that obviously Trump is the most decisive factor still in the Republican Party, but he doesn't always get his way. The real defining factor in the House is that they're all Trumpists on some level or another, whether they're, you know, more active uh, or or not, like Jim Jordan. But Mike Johnson's a pretty active Trumpist. And so while it wasn't his first choice, uh, President Trump certainly got his way. Well, well, let's talk policy, because Congressman Tom Emmer, he's considered to be somewhat of a more moderate Republican. He failed to become speaker. He had to give up pretty quickly. Trump called him a, quote, globalist rhino, i.e. Republican in name only. And there's so much of the House's attention is going to be on foreign policy. So you're looking at aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine. These are the things that Congress could do. How could Trump's influence play out on that front, Susan? Well, a couple points. First of all, it's interesting. Tom Emmer, he is the number three right now, the House majority whip. And while Trump criticizes him as a globalist, his real beef with Emmer was that he didn't pass the most important litmus test for Donald Trump, and that was going along with his efforts to block Biden in the House of Representatives on January 6th. But this new speaker does differ from the mainstream, I would say, of the Republican Party and is more in the kind of Trump America first vein. The new speaker, Mike Johnson, voted against aid for Ukraine, for example, including even last year's big package of $40 billion that came in the months after the Russian invasion. Johnson has already signaled strong support, as with the rest of his conference, for aid to Israel. But Biden is trying to package these all together right now, and we don't know what the fate of that will be under this unknown new speaker. You know, Trump is clearly very influential when in, in the political arena. He is on trial. There have been guilty pleas for three of his lawyers in Fulton County, Georgia. Trump this week did storm out of a courtroom in New York um, after the judge fined him for violating a gag order. What do you think about this? Because he kind of throw around his weight politically, but it's not working as well in the courtroom. 
No, what's amazing is the trial you just referenced in New York is a civil trial. We haven't even gotten to the four criminal trials yet, right? He's on civil trial for defrauding banks by making up uh, numbers, evaluating his assets to get loans. And the judge has already basically said he's guilty of it. And the only real question is how much damage is he going to have to pay? He is going to be stuck in a courtroom either physically or otherwise for basically the next year, even as he's trying to campaign for office. His campaign in some ways will be the most, un well, it definitely will be the most unusual campaign, I think, in history. But one way it will be unusual is it will be waged to some extent on the courthouse steps, right? He won't be able to do as many rallies. He won't be able to travel the country as much. He'll be doing it in front of cameras on courthouse steps, talking about how this is the latest in a witch hunt against him and so forth. And the question is, how long is that what uh, voters who support him want to talk about? I want to ask you, what are you watching next for Trump? But then also I want to ask you, what are you thinking for House Republicans? Because do you think that the current speaker will be able to stay, <laughs> stick around longer because they don't <laughs> want to go through this again? Or do you think that we are in for a wild ride? Well, they could both be true, right? In other words, I think that I think you're right that they don't want to go through that again. And the people who made it happen last time are more sympathetic and ideologically attuned to Mike Johnson than they were to Kevin McCarthy. So they're not likely to pull the same trick necessarily. But like you say, it's going to be a wild ride. This is a guy who's never been in leadership. He's only been in the House for six years. By some measure, he is the least experienced House Speaker in 140 years. So, you know, it just would be a challenge for anybody, regardless of ideology or party, to run a place with such a narrow majority facing a government shutdown with foreign policy crises all over the place and a very restive caucus. So he's, he has a great deal of challenge ahead of him. We'll see if he rises to the occasion. But I think you're right. It is going to be a wild ride. And Susan, what do you think about what are you watching for from Trump? <laughs> I'm exhausted already thinking about 2024, to be honest. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, this is uh, it's one of those things where all the outcomes seem impossible. And yet one way or the other, there will be an outcome. Uh, you know, the guy is facing an extraordinary amount of legal jeopardy. And how does that square with a Republican primary electorate that seems determined to keep cheering on for this man? I just don't know. These are incompatible ends. And yet, one way or the other, we're going to know at least a big part of the story of how it ends next year. That's Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. Their book about Trump was published last year. It's called The Divider. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. Great to be with you. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR in appreciation of the actor Matthew Perry, best known for playing Chandler Bing on the sitcom Friends. Perry has died at the age of 54. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mcleanhospital.org. 
It's 53 degrees in Boston. Rain around today and temperatures in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The U.N. aid agency in Gaza says thousands have broken into warehouses to take food and basic survival items. Supplies have largely been choked off by the war between Israel and Hamas militants, although an Israeli official said today that Israel is planning to allow a dramatic increase in aid in the coming days. The actor who played Chandler Bing on the popular sitcom Friends is reported to have died this weekend of an apparent drowning at his home in L.A. Matthew Perry was 54. And Wall Street is waiting waiting for an interest rate decision from the Federal Reserve. The Fed's Open Market Committee will hold two days of policy discussions beginning on Tuesday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Since the attack launched by Hamas from Gaza earlier this month, Israel's raids on the occupied West Bank have become more frequent and intense. Israel says it's targeting militants. Palestinian officials say more than 100 people have died. Last week, an Israeli airstrike hit the northern city of Jenin, a rare occurrence for the West Bank. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. The first place we go in Janine is the home of the Damaj family. Their home is built right up next to the Al-Ansar Mosque, the target of the Israeli airstrike last week. Noor Damaj gives me a tour, pointing out the rubble. We're in the Janine refugee camp. Refugees as in Palestinian refugees from the conflict in 1948 around the founding of the State of Israel. The camp is a densely populated, windy maze of alleys on a hillside. Last Sunday, Damaj was upstairs above his uncle's home, drinking tea with some relatives, when the airstrike hit the mosque next door. There was so much dust they could barely see, he says. They ran downstairs and found the mosque destroyed, and the doors to their house blocked in by all the rubble. It took an hour and a half to get inside, he said. No one in the family was hurt, but their house is messed up. Windows shattered, walls partially collapsed. His aunt, Itaf, says the Israelis must have known the family lived there. I am sure their planes have taken pictures of us. I am sure they know that there are civilians living next to the mosque. Janine has long been a hotbed for Palestinian militant resistance. Israel has periodically done raids here over the years, including a major one back in July when 12 Palestinians were killed. This week, things have picked up. And I'm inside the mosque now. There's rubble everywhere, dust everywhere. Israelis say there were tunnels that were used by Palestinian militants to store arms and weapons. Two people were killed in this airstrike, according to Palestinian officials. Then on Wednesday, an Israeli drone attack killed four people here. 
And on Friday, Palestinian officials say there was yet another raid and at least one more death. Israel says it only targets militants and that its actions are necessary to stamp out armed resistance. Around the corner from the mosque lives Man Zakarneh. He was at home for the airstrike, too. After the strike, he says he ran to gather up his wife and their three young daughters. And they raced to leave Janine for the night, going to stay with family out of town, feeling all the while like they were about to die. Back in July, Zakarneh told NPR he wanted to move to the U.S. to escape from this violence, since his wife and one of their daughters are American citizens. Their case hasn't gone anywhere yet. Now, he says, it feels even more urgent. His wife, Yasmin, sent an email to the State Department after the airstrike, begging for their case to be considered. We are not living in safe and peace. Zakarna says he has a good job, a nice house, a family to care for. But not everybody in the refugee camp has a life like that. Of the 15,000 or so people who live here, a lot of them are young and poor and unemployed. They have nothing to do with their lives, Zakarnas says. So it's easy to persuade them to do anything. Our last stop is the spot of the Israeli drone attack on Wednesday, just outside a cemetery. One, two, three, they were all standing right there. Three men who were killed, two teenagers and a 20-year-old, were told, were holding homemade explosives. That's according to both Israeli security forces and witnesses here. An Israeli drone spotted them and killed them there are still bloodstains on the ground. The cemetery where they died is for Palestinians killed by Israeli forces. But that cemetery is full, so their fresh graves are a block or so away. A 13-year-old boy named Tariq points out the graves for us. They were friends of his brothers, he says. I'm very sad because most of the friends have gone. He wouldn't have held the homemade explosives, Tariq says. But when we ask what is his future, he has only one answer. I'm going to be a freedom fighter. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Janine, the West Bank. There's been lots of news out of and about China over the past few days. The country's just-retired premier suddenly died. A missing defense minister is now officially dismissed. China's foreign minister was in Washington to try to mend ties with the U.S. And there is trouble in the South China Sea. NPR's Emily Fang joins us now for the latest. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Ayesha. So uh, let's start with China's foreign minister. He, he just wrapped up a three-day trip to the U.S. this weekend. Was it a productive trip? What was he able to accomplish? It seems like it. You know, there's been a lot of contact between the U.S. and China right now. Um, China's foreign minister is in the U.S. for the first time in five years. His name is Wang Yi, and he met for seven hours with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and then by the White House met President Biden. And so it's widely expected that the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, will also meet Biden next month at the APEC Forum in California. Top of mind this week during talks has been Taiwan. This is the self-ruled island that China claims as its own. And Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, listed Taiwan potentially declaring independence as China's number one challenge when it comes to U.S.-China relations. But it has been striking this week just seeing how Chinese state posturing on the U.S. has been much more positive the last few months. They've really been stressing the absolute 
absolute need for stability with the U.S. and the desire to work with the U.S. And that's perhaps in part because China is seeing a lot of turbulence in its economy and also political upheaval. They've suddenly had this unexplained removal of two ministers, a number of top military staff, and then this week, the death of a former premier. So who was this premier who just died? His name was Li Keqiang, and he had just stepped down as the country's number two official in March. He'd been a pretty bland premier, to be honest, for the last decade, but China is still in shock because Li Keqiang was only 68 years old when he died of a heart attack in Shanghai, and his death has opened up his window for people to criticize Xi Jinping. The song, A Pity It Wasn't You, has been shared on social media sites a lot, and there is a long line of mourners in Li's birthplace, although videos of those lines are being censored. And his death comes at a really bad time for China. They're suffering from a stagnant economy and still rocky relations with the U.S. So all of this is happening as two top ministers were dismissed with no explanation as well. They're missing two ministers. The former foreign minister, Chen Gong, went missing in June. Then China's defense minister, Li Shangfu, went missing at the end of August. This week, Li, the defense minister, he was officially removed from his job, and Qin was stripped of his last state title as well. We don't have an explanation for why, but all this signals some trouble at the top, and also just how little clarity we have on what actually goes on these days in Chinese elite politics. And this is a bit of a problem because today, Beijing is actually hosting this annual defense forum called the Xiangshan Forum. The U.S., other countries, they're sending their defense officials to attend, but there's no Chinese defense minister to receive them because Li has not had a replacement yet. So what can you tell us about what's happening in the South China Sea? Right. There's that going on. Well, last week, the Philippines released this video showing two minor collisions in the South China Sea, specifically around disputed waters near what's called the Second Thomas Shoal. That's where the Philippines sunk a World War II ship there, and they've permanently stationed their soldiers on the ship to maintain a territorial claim against China's. And last week, it accused China of blocking resupply boats and then causing a small crash with those boats when they were trying to deliver food and supplies to the Philippines. Sailors. Now, from what I understand, the Philippines have been able to get food in since, but they haven't been able to ship in construction supplies to maintain that station. And tensions got tense enough around this shoal in the South China Sea that Biden actually weighed in last Thursday and said the U.S. would defend the Philippines if China attacked it. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Emily, thank you so much. Thanks, Aisha. We've watched as communities across the American South have removed Confederate monuments from public spaces in recent years. Some have gone to museums, others are locked away in storage, but one particularly controversial statue from Charlottesville, Virginia, is on a different journey to be completely transformed into something new. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. A massive bronze sculpture of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in uniform, astride his horse traveler, stood in a downtown Charlottesville park for nearly a century. It was at the center of a deadly white nationalist rally in 2017 when neo-Nazis and white supremacists tried to stop the city's plans to remove the statue. It finally came down in 2021. Charlottesville prevailed in a prolonged legal battle with the Sons of Confederate Veterans and other groups and donated the Lee statue to a coalition that proposed to melt it down and create a more inclusive public art installation. We want to transform 
something that has been toxic uh, in the Charlottesville community. Jelaine Schmidt is a religious studies professor at the University of Virginia and one of the project's organizers. People are willing to die for symbols, and as we saw in Charlottesville, they're willing to kill for them, too. Lawsuits to stop the project failed, and last weekend, organizers moved forward with great secrecy to disassemble and melt down the Lee Monument. The work is being done at an out-of-state foundry. NPR agreed not to reveal its location or the identity of the workers because they fear repercussions. They use a torch to score the head of the statue in the pattern of a death mask. Lee's face falls to the floor. The symbolism is poignant for Andrea Douglas. She directs the Jefferson School African American Cultural Center in Charlottesville, which is leading the project. The act of myth-making that has occurred around Robert E. Lee, removing his face is emblematic of the kind of removal of that kind of myth. The project is called Swords into Plowshares, taken from a Bible verse in the book of Isaiah. A furnace is set up in a side yard of the foundry using propane and forced air to top 2,000 degrees. Workers feed pieces of the Verdigree statue, including General Lee's saber, into a large vessel inside the furnace called a crucible. We are turning swords into something else. You know, that saber is the object of violence, and it was the object of power, it's the object of conquest. Just after nightfall, foundry workers remove the crucible, glowing a bright red-orange, and pour the steaming molten bronze into molds. Jelaine Schmidt says the most exciting part for her is seeing the new ingots created. Because that's about going forward. That's, you know, oh, here they are now. They're flipping it out. See here? You know, turn that upside down and it's like a banana bread pan, you know, or a meatloaf or something. You gotta <laughs> knock it out of there. Oh, there it is. For security reasons few people were invited to watch, among them is Ashley Woodard Henderson, who feels the weight of what she's witnessing. Oh my gosh, I mean, as like a proud black Appalachian who is born and raised in the South, um, I know this to be more than just a symbolic moment. Henderson is co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, which has long been an incubator for labor and civil rights activists. She sees opportunity in this moment. I'm most excited about what, what it looks like to repair, what reparations looks like for folks in Charlottesville, what it looks like to tell this new story. I'm, I'm hyped. I feel excited. I think this is a joyful occasion in a really dire strait of political nastiness that we've been surviving. For Methodist minister Isaac Collins, the deadly white nationalist violence in Charlottesville was a turning point for the nation and says it's surreal to see the focal point of that episode disassembled. You know, I was thinking Humpty Dumpty couldn't be put back together again. <laughs> I was like, it's over, baby. This thing is never going back up. We still have a lot of work to do, but this statue that has cost us so much so much violence, so much hurt, so much bloodshed. 
it's gone and it's never going to be put back together the way it was. The melting down of the Lee statue will take weeks. It weighed nearly 10,000 pounds. Organizers say the next step will be choosing an artist who will craft the bronze ingots into a new art form to be displayed in Charlottesville. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Matthew Perry, star of the hit TV sitcom Friends, has reportedly died at age 54. An actor since his teenage years, Perry was best known for playing charming, sarcastic Chandler Bing. Here's Chandler watching a sad movie with his friends. Well, see, now that I can see crying over, but Bambi is a cartoon. You didn't cry when Bambi's mother died? Yes, it was very sad when the guy stopped drawing the deer. <laughs> But even as Friends' success was turning him into a worldwide star, Perry was struggling with crippling addictions to alcohol and drugs. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins joins us now. Hi, Eric. Hi. Uh, first, what do we know about Matthew Perry's death? Well, not much. Several news outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, have quoted unnamed law enforcement sources to say Perry was found unresponsive in a hot tub at his home on Saturday after an apparent drowning. There's been no official cause of death released yet. Even though many TV fans got to know him as a star on Friends, Perry had actually been acting for quite a while before he landed on that show, right? Yeah, it's true. You know, he was raised in Canada, but he moved to California when he was a teenager, and he started acting on TV shows like Growing Pains and Beverly Hills 90210. In fact, Perry almost didn't get on NBC's Friends because he was committed to a pilot for a terrible comedy on another network about futuristic airport baggage handlers. But luckily, he got out of that contract and began playing Chandler, who stood out as this sarcastic, quick-witted, lovable character on a show that became such a generationally defining hit that all its stars became the highest paid actors on television at the time. Now, we've got an outtakes clip from the National Geographic Channel documentary of the 90s, where Perry talked a little bit about why the role fit him so well. It was a role that I really just sort of could shake hands with off the page kind of thing. It really just was me. Still, with all that success, Perry struggled with addictions to alcohol and drugs. So, I, I mean, it just seems like the fame and the wealth, it, it didn't solve everything, right? That's very true. You know, Perry released a memoir last year where he talked a lot about his issues with substance use, saying he first started drinking heavily as a teenager. And by the mid-1990s, while he was making friends, he was addicted to painkillers like Vicodin. He later entered multiple rehab programs and became an advocate for helping those with substance use disorders. Uh, during an interview with the CBC last year, Perry said it was tough for him to watch old reruns of Friends because he could see the effects of his addictions. Let's listen. Well, I didn't watch the show and haven't watched the show because I could go drinking, opiates, cocaine. Drink, like I could tell season by season by how I looked. I think I'm going to start to watch it because it's been an incredible thing to watch it touch the hearts of different generations. 
And, you know, it's also true that Friends reached new generations of fans even after it stopped making new episodes in 2004, thanks to streaming services like Netflix and Max. Now, Perry would go on to star in films like The Whole Nine Yards and other TV shows like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip and a revival of The Odd Couple. But it was his turn as Chandler Bing on Friends, where he's playing this character very close to his own personality that endeared Matthew Perry to legions of TV audiences over multiple generations. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Eric, thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Victims of the worst mass shooting in Maine history are being remembered in vigils. Last night, hundreds of people gathered in the town of Lisbon, Maine, for the first of several such events that have been planned after a gunman killed 18 people and injured 13 in Lewiston this past Wednesday. A popular brewery native to Massachusetts is expanding its craft beer presence beyond New England for the first time. Treehouse Brewing said on social media that it plans to open a brewery and tap room in Saratoga Springs, New York next year. 78 affordable housing units in Boston's Fenway neighborhood will become a permanent fixture. The city of Boston and two nonprofit housing developers have acquired Our Ladies Guild House. They plan to extensively renovate the property and modernize it for the women who live there, and they intend to protect the tenancies of long-term residents. It's 53 degrees in Boston, rain today, and temperatures in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. With their upholstery event through October, hundreds of sofa sectional and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers, circlefurniture.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Peter Gross, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we talked about how a live baby animal cam is getting us through the actor strike. This is where we're at now. A baby otter is the closest we can get to Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> On the radio, you can imagine we're all baby otters. So join us and special guest legendary lyricist Bernie Taupin on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Applying to college is one thing. Applying for financial aid is a whole other thing. For years, there were complaints about the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, which had more than 100 questions. Marie Kurima is a freshman at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and recently filled out FAFSA for the first time. Finding, like, the specific things that you needed to apply for it without being taught what those things are in class or in school was pretty hard for me. In 2020, Congress passed the FAFSA Simplification Act with the goal of streamlining the form and expanding financial aid. The revisions will be finalized later this year. 
the overhaul will make a difference, benefiting an estimated 220,000 more students. That's according to a new report from the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Rachel Burns wrote the report. She's a senior policy analyst with the association and joins us now. Welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. FAFSA can be really overwhelming, especially for a, a kid straight out of high school. Is it just that it's less questions or are the questions less complicated? So it's essentially the same questions. It's just that now instead of a student having to fill out all of the financial questions, if they opt in to allowing the data to come directly from the Internal Revenue Service, all of those questions will be automatically filled in for them and they won't have to go in and input their own or their parents' financial information. Okay. And what about the amount of aid individual students could get? Are you predicting that will change? Will will they get more or less on average? On average, students will be eligible for more financial aid. The thresholds below which students needed to fall in terms of adjusted gross income or assets or allowances, those have all increased. So a larger number of students will be below those thresholds and therefore eligible. And every year the Pell Grant increases and the same thing is happening this year. Will there be any students who will have a tougher time getting federal aid because of these changes? Unfortunately, yes, there are a specific group of students who will likely see some negative impacts from this change. The first one is students who have another family member that's in college. So under the previous formula, the parent contribution to the expected out-of-pocket cost accounted for the fact that a family had more than one family member in college. That portion of the calculation is going away. So now there's no difference. If, if there's two families with everything is exactly the same, except one family has one in college and one family has two, those students will have the exact same expected out-of-pocket cost. So it's no longer accounting for there being more than one student in college. And, and, and so tell me about the second group. So the second group is students whose families had small businesses or family farms, less than 100 employees, did not have to report the assets of the family farm or the business on their FAFSA. And that small business family farm exclusion is going away. And that's going to be a really significant change for a lot of students. So I wanted to ask you about some entirely new classes of people that will be able to take advantage of using the FAFSA, people with criminal convictions and some people with with drug convictions. Is, is that correct? That is correct. That's one of the, in, in our eyes, one of the most exciting changes about the new FAFSA. It is um, lifting prohibitions for students with prior drug convictions and felonies. It's lifting prohibitions for students who have not registered for the selective service, and it restores Pell eligibility for incarcerated students. So not just formerly convicted students, but also students who are currently incarcerated. That's Rachel Burns, a senior policy analyst at the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association, talking about expected changes in the free application for student aid or FAFSA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For the cowboys and cowgirls who compete in rodeo, there is no higher honor than a spot in the National Rodeo Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. Next month, there will be a new class of inductees, and Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg has, a, has this profile of one of them. 
At 75 years old, J.C. Trujillo can still feel that moment. He became a rodeo cowboy. I remember it clear as day. His first calf riding competition for kids, he was six. I was scared as you could be to have to get on one of those calves, you know. End up uh, hanging on the side, but I made the whistle. And got second place. I won $10.80, and by golly, I thought I'd never see a poor day. Decades later, he'd use rodeo winnings to buy this remote 50-acre spread in western Colorado. Trujillo still rides his horse every day, but his 4 by 4 makes for quicker travel. He steps out in his straw cowboy hat and denim western shirt with his tiny initials on the front. You never get your eyes completely full of this kind of country. A vista of mountains thick with trees, so brightly illuminated by sunlight that their golden leaves look like they're on fire. I guess I have to say everything that I have in one way or the other came from the rodeo business. Back down the hill, Trujillo sits outside an old log cabin. He and his wife Margot have made their home. I was born and raised in the western way of life. In Arizona, the son of a ranch cowboy and a mother who was nervous about him competing in rodeo, but always supported him. They're the ones that paid the entry fees for my brother and I to go to these junior rodeos and bought a horses and bought horse trailers. Trujillo's rodeo career advanced through college. After graduating from Arizona State University, he considered becoming a teacher, but... Went to riding bareback horses and never looked back. When he hit the pro circuit in the early 70s, Trujillo ended up 17th in the world. He quickly made it to the national finals and would for more than a decade. It was a lifetime goal of mine and dream to become a world's champion. In 1980, he got close until a horse bucked him off in competition. That lit a fire in him. So I rodeoed hard that next year again. And uh, in 1981, I won the world's championship in the bareback riding. Trujillo always knew his rodeo days wouldn't last forever. It's a tough life, he says. You're driving, flying, hitchhiking, doing whatever you can do to get to a rodeo. And his wife and two daughters needed him to be home more. In 1983, he got a break, courtesy of a horse. Great big old horse. They called him Tombstone. And he drugged me around. I broke some ribs, punctured a lung, dislocated my right knee. But other than that, I was okay. A few years later, after entering the national finals arena one last time. Thought it was time to hang her up. Now, almost four decades later, his name is about to be added to the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. With all my heroes, you know, unbelievable. There is that trope of the solitary cowboy. But Trujillo did not get here alone. And my mom and dad, I have to give a giant amount of credit for my success in the rodeo business. I would get a little emotional sometimes on that. <laughs> Trujillo says that when he's inducted, he knows they'll be looking down with big smiles. The same way he looks at his grandkids as they compete in rodeo. Two have already turned pro. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg.
a door creak, a chill wind, maybe a thump, thump, thump upstairs. All signs you've been visited by a ghost. But for author Jeanette Winterson, a ghost can send a ping to your phone or visit you in the metaverse. She's written a new collection of ghost stories, one that spans all sorts of genres, the night side of the river. And the author of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit and Frankenstein joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Why do you think we are drawn to ghost stories, not only in fiction, but like in our lives? All humans want to do is break down every barrier. That's been our great success story. But death is the hard boundary. It's the barrier that everybody on this planet will meet at some point in their life, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter who they are, no matter what their achievements, you know, that's coming for them. And human beings long to believe that there might be something on the other side of that. And you know what? Even the most skeptical of us, when we lose a loved one, we really want there to be something on the other side. Mm, yeah, and, and you deal with that in the book, um, with one partner who just wants some sign of their loved one. And I, at the end of that, I wrote, it's a very sweet love story. Oh, I'm glad you like that one. Yeah, a lot of people have a like, it's a pair of hinged stories. So that they both sit side by side. And as you say, the first story is from the point of view of the person who is bereaved. And the second story is from the point of view of the ghost, the dead person who is desperately trying to give that sign that we all want to see, but, but somehow it never quite happens. Um, in these stories, Maybe it does. I mean, we play with the idea of is it, is it all in someone's imagination or, or, or is it not? Mm. You write that ghost stories are often set in the past. I mean, obviously ghosts are from the past. Um, yeah, that's why it's their favorite place. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but many of these uh, stories are kind of set in the present or almost like a, a future world technology wise. Why do that? One of the interesting things now at the time that we're living in is as artificial intelligence, computational power uh, starts to offer us different ways of being alive, it also starts to offer us different ways of, of, of thinking about death. And I realised that, you know, just as you can get that crazy app which will scrape your social media and then you can get texts and messages from, from your dead loved one or you can put them into your photo album, even though they've already gone. I was thinking, this is offering all kinds of new possibilities for the ghost story. But if we are going to have apps that allow us to contact our dead loved ones, and if we were in the metaverse as our avatars, our digital twins, uh, meeting other folks like us, but also with programs who's gonna, who are going to be our hosts and so on, how would we know? if there were ghosts who had infiltrated that space. It seems to me like a perfect space for ghosts. There's a great line in the book. It's on page 54. If you could just read that. I feel sure that by manufacturing disembodied worlds, worlds of our own, and that's what we mean by a metaverse. It's a location, let's not call it a place, a location where we exist only in avatar form and where our minds enter a reality not dependent on the material world, then, as we do that, we have unexpectedly created an opportunity for the dead. And that was like, I had never thought of that. <laughs> because it's kind of like being a ghost. <laughs> yeah, they don't have bodily form, so it's going to be perfect if we create 
places, spaces where we are all uh, running around not in bodily form, why wouldn't they come to join us? <laughs> yes, and how would we even know? They could say they're a program or something. We wouldn't it's... know. That's the crazy <laughs> thing about it. You know? And it's also crazy, you know, that if, if you go in there with your friend or your partner, your loved one, your family, whatever, and somebody in that group dies, you can keep them going in the metaverse as yeah. their avatar. I think that's weird. Yeah, I think it's weird too, but I thought you brought up the idea that maybe sometimes it's better to leave the dead dead. Yes, I mean, yes. And, and you know, I'm, I'm doing this transition here, but you, but you talk about your own experiences with ghosts. And so I wondered why decide to include those anecdotes? There's 13 ghost stories. There had to be 13, didn't they? Because it's a spooky number. But I like to play with the form. I thought, well, why not break in as myself and talk about things that have happened to me that I can't explain away? So I was showing that I've got some skin in the game here, that these things have been part of my reality and I don't understand it. Uh, and simply I have to live with it. And, you know, we're in a world now that's always looking for easy answers, uh, quick fire solutions. Nobody likes to say, I don't know. And this is a, a book about saying, I don't know. And when it comes to the supernatural, I think that's the most honest answer. And, and so you, in, in the book, you have this kind of charming way of dealing with ghosts. And, and, and you're, I don't know if you still live in this home, but it's in a home that you lived in. Um, and you would just, you greet them pleasantly and just ask them that they behave well and don't involve you. Now, I would not react that way to ghosts. Like, I love ghost stories, <laughs> but if I can't, I would not be like, you know, just, just behave well. I would be like, you know, I'd be going crazy. I'd be running around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when it first started happening, I do still have this house. It's a very old house. It was built in the 1780s, so it's seen a lot of life. And so it's not perhaps surprising that some of that life is still hanging around in a, in a different form. And to start with, I used to get... First I was frightened, then I was cross. And then I thought, what can I do about this? Maybe I should start talking to them and then they won't just sit down on the bed in the middle of the night, you know, or turn the radio on in the kitchen, uh, which is really irritating because I hate being woken up. And since I've started talking to them, uh, it's been really much more civilised. Have you thought about what would you do as a ghost? Well, do you know, I might come back to my own house and I might kick out those tenants that have been there for so long. Who've <laughs> been hanging out for so long. <laughs> yeah, I think by then it'll be it'll be fair, you know, because I'll be a ghost as well and they can just they can just move on because I'll have it back to myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jeanette Winterson. Her new collection of ghostly short stories and other essays is called The Night Side of the River. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me in spookiness. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Have a happy Halloween. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone. 
at betterhelp.com public. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It's 53 degrees in Boston with some rain around today and temperatures in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting The Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. And Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I was at my home in Washington, D.C. when I learned that my neighbor knew someone who had been taken hostage by Hamas in Gaza. So I've come here to Israel to find his family. I'm Steve Inskeep. We'll co-host Morning Edition from Israel next week on NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.